Welcome to another episode of the Weekly Regular. My name is Asan, and uh, I'm joined today by a special guest, a first-time guest to the podcast. He is a uh, good friend of mine. We'll get into a little bit of his bio here in a second. Uh, but welcome to the podcast, Mark Chase. Chase, what's up? Yo, yo, thanks for having me on, man. I know we've been <laughs> flirting with this idea for a minute. Finally oh, made it happen. Man, finally made it happen, bro. You know we had to get you over here. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, man, I'm super excited to have you on the show, bro. Like we've been we 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 talk a lot just about, you know, whatever, just random stuff. We both are, I think, are deep thinkers and uh we get into our bag uh on many occasions just talking about whatever random stuff. So I'm really excited to do this and have you on the show, bro. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. And yes, we we do get into our bag. <laughs> the philosophical, the theological, the historical. It's, it's pretty, uh, it's a wide range. For sure. <laughs> um, so normally the way we start off the show is uh, I ask uh, what you were doing this week. Like, what did you do this week? What's your week been like? What'd you get into? It could be as deep as you want it to be or as as simple as you want it to be. I know you have kids and all of that kind of craziness. So uh, why don't you get into what you did this week? I was just about to say, you you can't ask that to a parent with toddlers. We don't know, bro. <laughs> we just know what happened today. Right. And today, uh, our three-year-old woke us all up at like 520 uh-huh. uh, in the morning. So like I am like dragging. I'm on my third cup of coffee. It's like 11 a.m. I'll probably do like four or five cups of coffee today. Yes. Yeah. He's just in this this special zone where he just want to wake up at like five. That's and nuts. I'm going to deal with it. Like, so like at what age do you start teaching your kids when it is appropriate like to wake up? Like when at what age can you tell your kids go back to bed? Immediately. Because like, <laughs> You try to sleep. Right. The other question is, the better question is, at what age do they start listening? Right. Because we've been telling them that for, you know, since they've been here. Mm -hmm. But they don't they don't listen to that. You know, we we point to the window like, look outside. You see, it's dark outside. That means it's time for you to go to bed. They don't don't care. They just know my body say I'm ready to do this. Right. on board so that's funny so how how old are your kids you have two kids how old are they three and two so one just turned two Uh uh, a couple weeks ago and one is turning four in november oh okay and do you have brothers and sisters yep i'm the last of four wow that uh i call it the still got it baby Uh uh-huh my parents you know my mom actually had uh two miscarriages before oh, okay. she had me. Wow. And so they actually thought, like, medically that, you know, they were maybe too old and were past that age, and then then I came through. So my next closest re- uh, sibling is seven years older than me. That's my brother. He's actually, mm-hmm. uh, his birthday is actually tomorrow, so it's a good reminder right there. Hit him up. Happy yeah. birthday, Kev. Love you, bro. <laughs> No, if you check this out, and then Chase, please don't to- use my podcast for personal shout outs. Right, right. <laughs> I'm trying to build my platform. You know um, man, uh, you know it's funny. Uh, I try. I'm trying not to avoid uh, deep thoughts when I have them. Just not just on the podcast, but just in general. Like I, I mentioned your mom about you know losing the first two kids before uh, before successfully giving birth to Mark Anthony Chase. Um, now. Did she? Do you know if she named the other two kids before miscarrying? Wow, yo, 
That is a wow. That's a beautiful question. <laughs> I've never asked her that. You should ask her you that. Know, it's one of those things where I just let her tell me, right? But I just don't know where you know that grief is. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. So with with my mom, I've always let her just volunteer that information to me. Right. And when she talks about it, you know, I'm I'm listening and I'm there. But yeah. I've never asked her that. That's that's a good question. Because here, here's here's the the deeper question that I'm thinking about is if if she had named one of the other two kids Mark Chase, and that and that kid ended up being a boy, um, would that kid be you or somebody else? Yo, <laughs> yo, that's a deep philosophical question right there, man. That is because I don't know how yeah. much how much. Um, I don't know how much of the DNA that makes you you is present at like conception versus how much of it forms. Like yeah. I'm not a I'm not a bio I'm not a biologist or anything like that. Uh, so like oh, man, I would love to know the answer to that. Like I wonder if if you would be a completely different person if you were one of the other children. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, and that begs the question of when you are coming, when a soul is coming into this world, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like. Like, yeah, is that the same? Is that the same soul? Is that the same essence? Richard Rohr, uh, theologian, says it this way. Your soul is the face you had mm-hmm. before you were born. Mm-hmm. I love that quote. Your soul is the face you had before you were born. So those other two babies, what what face was that? Is this the same face? Am yeah. I the same soul that was trying to express itself to, that God was calling forth uh, previously? And I just made it out this time. You know what I mean? It's it's funny. I say soul, and it reminds me of the movie Soul. I don't know if you if you've I haven't seen out. it yet. I haven't seen oh, Soul yet. Gosh. Okay, I, I don't want to spoil it for okay. listeners <laughs> or for or for you, bro. But check it out. Okay, man. but it goes into that. It talks a lot about that. But but yeah, but I can talk about the soul. It's just that is your essence, like who yeah. you really are mm-hmm. before. The world tells you who you're not, mm-hmm. right? By the world, I mean our ego, our the physical attachments, material things, yeah. societal structures, right? Mm-hmm. There are all these things that you navigate when you put on flesh and you're a body living in the world, but your soul is that essence. Your soul is is the original thing that you are before all the other things even come into the picture, right? So mm-hmm. that's why I love that quote is the face you had before you were born. So some of the deepest, best spiritual work a person could do is getting in touch with that, with that face you had mm-hmm. before the world told you you were something different. Mm. So, I don't know, though. I don't know. That's a good question, though. I'm going to ask my mom, though. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that might be a great conversation starter. Um, if For the listeners out there, if you can't tell, Chase is definitely a, um, has a background in spirituality. Um, he's a very spiritual brother. Um, Chase, why don't this? I think this will be a good opportunity for you to give a little bit of your bio, who you are, what you do, um, and you know all that kind of stuff. So we th- so we have that background going forward as we get into like deeper yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, man. So yeah, that's a yeah. I don't know where to start with that. So I'll start from the beginning, as far back as I know to go. Mm-hmm. So I'm originally uh, from Guyana, mm-hmm. which is a small country in the Caribbean. So it's culturally Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, Geographically, it sits right between Venezuela and Brazil. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we were a British uh, colony. Uh, my ancestors is from somewhere over there in West Africa, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I refuse to take one of them ancestry tests, though, because mm. I already know I'm from like this half of the continent somewhere. Right. So yeah, I'm not can- going to pay a hundred a hundred dollars for you to tell me what I already know. <laughs> You know, I just refuse. So I know I'm from somewhere over there, my ancestors. Let me ask you this. Have you been to Guyana? Yeah. Yeah. I I was born there. You were born there. So, yeah, I was born there, been back. Uh, My family and I, we immigrated in 1987, 88. Mm -hmm. So I was about three or four years old. So I'm in an interesting space culturally because culturally I fully and completely identify with being Mm African-American. So that was my culture. You know, I really didn't get a lot of time right. to, you know, be immersed in uh, Caribbean culture other than, you know, my home life when I was in New York, you know. And, yeah. and so I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering in Guyana, the the ethnic makeup of the people there, is it predominantly Afro Latin people or are they or because, you know, in some countries there's like there's like the Afro Latin people and then there's more of like the the European uh, yeah. uh latin people and what yeah. is what is the sort of the 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 like the the prevailing sort of ethnic makeup of guyana yeah so in guyana you wouldn't be considered uh, i wouldn't be considered afro uh latino at all mm-hmm. because it was a british colony and so it's oh, uh predominantly okay. english speaking gotcha. right so i'm you know i'm i'm not afro latino in that sense so the demographic is uh, people of African descent who mm-hmm. were brought over during the Atlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a couple different countries got into that, man. So it was Great Britain, of course, uh, mm-hmm. who ultimately won out. Right. A, then there was also uh, the Netherlands. They was also mm-hmm. trafficking human beings, you know, across the Atlantic and ended up sure. there in Guyana. Scotland, too. You know, your boy Highlander. You know, they was <laughs> <laughs> the Highlanders was bringing us... Was bringing us over too, you know. So, so one of those folks brought us over, and then later on, after slavery was abolished Uh uh, in the 1830s in uh, in Great Britain, Uh uh, what ended up happening was indentured servants from India came over as well. Oh wow! There's a portion of Guyana. It's about I want to say about 40 percent of the country is ethnically. Uh, Indian. Oh, that's right? interesting. And predominantly Hindu in religious practice. Okay. And then uh, we have, of course, our indigenous uh, population. Mm-hmm. And then there's a small population of Chinese who also came over uh, mm-hmm. to work and, and be indentured servants. So there's a little mix up of, mix. of everything, but predominantly uh, Indian and people of African descent. Gotcha. Okay, you can continue in the in the in the chase story. Yeah, yeah. So no, nah, but that's an important part, right yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So came up to New York uh-huh. when I was uh, three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mount Vernon, New York, money earning. You know. Mm-hmm. So if you know P Diddy, he's from there. He don't like to claim us. He like to claim Harlem, but I don't know. He's, he's, <laughs> he's from Mount Vernon. Uh-huh. Uh, DMX, rest in power, mm-hmm. was born in Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pete Rock and CL Smooth uh, from Mount Vernon as well. Um, so it's a real, it's a predominantly black city. So for me, um, that that was my understanding of uh, America. I didn't go very far outside of Mount Vernon, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, with the internet and TV. Yeah. I, I knew that there were different places in the world that looked a little different, but <laughs> I, 
grew up in a I grew up in a black oasis. You right. know, it was blackity black black. <laughs> I think it's like eighty percent black, something like that. And yeah. We got some, uh, some folks who are Brazilian. You know, so but it's predominantly black. So that's where I grew up. Uh-huh. Didn't move out here to California until about 2006, 2007. Uh-huh. And like you mentioned, uh, I have a background in, in spirituality. What brought uh, you to California? I don't know if I ever asked yeah, you that. That's, that's what brought me out here. So, okay. so a brother had uh, <laughs> a conversion experience, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. I got dumped by girl. Mm-hmm. I got dumped in the foulest way. <laughs> you want to tell the story? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I got to after I tee it up like that. But got dumped in the foulest way. So, mind you, me and this girl, we dated for like two years. We had a little fake wedding ceremony, you know, down by this little creek. You know, so yeah, we had some history, you know? Yeah. And we go away to college. She's a little bit smarter than me. Mm -hmm. She gets into one of these fancy schools out in Boston, a little private school. Yeah. I get into a uh, state school in upstate New York because that that was your brother's range. That's that's where I was at. You know? <laughs> I think I had those skills to get into them schools. Yeah. But I, I didn't really apply myself. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I'm in upstate New York. She's in uh, Boston. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were long distance for like two, three months. And then after a while, yo, she just she just stopped calling me like like just stop. Call- and then I would hit her up and she was always like on her way somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. always on our way somewhere. And then after a while, like this name started popping up. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm, like, oh, I'm going over here with, with such and such. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's, it was her, her homegirl, And then this, then this dude, such and such. Yeah. Such and such. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, and then it, it, it just hit me, yo, this is, this is what I knew. I was like, yo, it's a rat. It's a rat. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> she was like, I'm going, uh, with, my homegirl and such and, and such, such and on such on uh-huh. Disney on Ice. Oh yeah, that's a wrap. Yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, for yeah. any of the listeners out yeah, there, yeah, if yeah, 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 yeah. The other or somebody that you, if they going somewhere, yeah, and it's on ice, yeah, it's, it's over. Ice. It's over with. It's it's a wrap because yeah. that's an immersive experience, <laughs> right? And you know so, it gets cold in there. You know they offer you know, jackets. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You already know the vibes. You already know the vibes, man. And, and when I heard it, I was like, damn, that sounds dope. I'm actually, I'm like happy for you. Like, <laughs> but she had, just, you know, she just started dating this other dude. So anyway, wow. I bring that up to say mm-hmm. that prompted uh, a, a more of a, like a, a, a religious awakening for me. Because mm-hmm. like I said, me and that person were, were really close. Mm-hmm. And along the same uh, timeline, my sister she had become uh, what you would describe as a born again Christian, right? Uh-huh. She she had given her life to Christ, right. and Jesus, and all that comes with that, you know. And she had been uh, trying to convert me for quite some time, and mm-hmm. you know, in the kindest way. Like my sister Nikki, you know, she was she would just minister to me. She would give me scriptures. She would encourage me, all these different things. And then when that relationship fell apart, opened the door for that, you know, religious experience. Mm-hmm. And then that set me on this quest to learn more. And I uh, felt like, you know, seminary was a great place to do that. Mm. Now, I didn't know what a seminary was, <laughs> but I just knew I was like, maybe I should go do that. Yeah. And so I 
Google Seminary. Uh-huh. And the first thing that popped up was this place called Fuller uh-huh. Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been a Christian like, you know, for like maybe one or two years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is a sign from God. I Googled. <laughs> <and> look, <laughs> not that they just paid for the ad space. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that not not the out. algorithm, you know. Not the <laughs> algorithm, you know, this is this is the alpha rhythm. Hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> and so Fuller just happened to be in uh-huh. right here in Pasadena. And uh-huh. so that's what brought me out to the West Coast. Got you. And so you uh what'd you get a degree in and uh at Fuller? Yeah, so I got my degree. It's called a Master's of uh, Divinity. Okay. Uh, so it encompasses like biblical studies, uh, historical church, uh, church history, mm-hmm. uh, languages. So I took some Greek and some Hebrew because those are the two predominant uh, languages of uh, the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some ministry classes. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's a wide range. It's a long degree, 144 credits. What's a ministry? What are what are ministry classes like? What do you learn in a ministry class? Like, what are some of the mini- ministry classes you took? Yo, uh, so I took one. <laughs> I'm <laughs> laughing because anybody who's taken these classes uh-huh. kind of know they don't really prepare you for what's really out there. Gotcha. You know, and I don't know if it's because of what's lacking in the course itself. Mm-hmm. This is what real life ministry is is like, and how crazy and wild it is, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I took a pastoral care and counseling class, and honestly, bro, I couldn't even tell you what what <laughs> what we talked about. Like, I just know I don't use it. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm still paying the student loans on it, but I know I don't. I don't. I never hearken back huh. to pastoral care and counseling to pull lessons and yeah through the syllabus, you know, and whatnot. Yeah. But you know, it's it's just. It's just one thing I did learn in seminary, at least the concept of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really learning what it means. Is this thing called the ministry of presence? I do I do remember learning that mm-hmm. in, in seminary. But basically, the ministry of presence, what that is, is um, the, it, it basically says the thing that people need the most, whether it's uh, a time of counseling, advice, or especially in times of grief, is not for you, you to say anything profound but for you to just be profoundly present, right? And so you can practice that whether you're a pastor, uh, whether you're just somebody's friend. You know, when somebody's going through something, they really don't need words. They they really just need you, you know? Hmm. So that is one thing I remember learning. And, that is, I, that and, isn't, and Chase, isn't that, isn't that what religion is largely anyway? Like that, hmm. I mean, and, and not just religion, but just like, anything that centers on a community i mean that's what it is right like that's the purpose of it like the purpose is not to uh you know the anytime there's a community and it's being leveraged for you know one person's benefit or something like that it's like i think we've lost it you know what i mean like community is there that we all give equally when you know and so that there's um that there is uh, care when any one member or any particular group of the members need that care, you know what I mean? Or just need to be listened to, or just need to be a part of something, you know? Um, So anyway, uh, so you went to Fuller, you got your degree in masters of divinity. So where does that bring us present day? What, what is the work that you do? And um, uh, just, just tell us a little bit about where you are now and kind of the work that you're doing now. Yeah. So the work that I'm doing now, 
encompasses a little bit of what I got that degree for. Uh-huh. Primarily, the work that I'm doing now is uh, work centered on racial justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I work for a thing called the Fellowship Center for Racial Reconciliation. Uh-huh. Um, and we primarily do the work of justice through trainings, workshops, helping people understand local and national history as it concerns race. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do different cohorts and learning communities. Uh, so right now we're doing uh, this thing we call table talks, which is where we've been doing them over Zoom because of you know COVID and all that mm-hmm. and the realities. Uh, but we basically just sit down and you know with about 15, 20, 25 folks, and we just talk through uh, and have real, honest, hard dialogue about different conversations that pertain to race and, and racial justice. So that's what we got going on now. And those conversations are important because, you know, you look out on the interwebs, mm-hmm. you know, ain't nobody talking to each other on the Internet. Right. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times you don't even hear what people of divergent opinions even have to say. Mm-hmm. You hear a caricature or you hear, a, you know, a representation of what they have to say, but you don't really hear it. And a lot of times that ain't really dialogue. You just right. going at somebody, trying to expose <laughs> them and embarrass them. And who, who wants to be embarrassed? You know, right. grown people don't want to be embarrassed. So, right. uh, yeah, so that's what we do. We do table talks where we can dialogue uh, and have conversations about race. So that's primarily what I do. But it does connect back to uh, faith and some of the things I learned uh, in seminary and went to seminary, seminary for, rather, because uh, I firmly believe this that you have to merge uh, faith and most, most importantly, just love, right? Love and uh, the, the contemplative aspects of faith, right? Not the power structures mm-hmm. that religion often force on us, but, but that, uh, that love that Jesus talks about mm-hmm. is I like, love your neighbor like you would love yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, the way I practice justice, those two things have to go, go together or else what ends up happening is we just end up replicating the same systems that we're trying to dismantle. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Cause you gotta be real. Like even if, uh, even during p- opposing injustice and dismantling racist systems, mm-hmm. we gotta be honest. Like, yo, a lot of that stuff found its way in, into me in the right. way I do things, the way I relate to people Sure, living in a violent world, that violence is bound to be internalized, you know? So for mm-hmm. me, I got to marry those two, you know, um, yeah. my, my faith is I see Jesus revealing it and, and justice. They, they go together. Dope. Um, yeah, let's, so there's, there's, it's, you occupy these two spheres within, you know, sort of racial, so, social justice, uh, issues and, and issues of spirituality and topics of, you know, religion and things like that. I want to save God and religion and stuff for, the end of the conversation or like sort of uh, the later part of the conversation, because I think that's, we'll have uh, a lot of fun in that conversation. Cause, it, but there are some things dealing with race and stuff like that. Like I would love to get into and just kind of like pick your brain about, um, it's not too often, uh, that I get someone who specializes in these topics on, although I have had, um, uh, John Williams on, um, a colleague of yours, uh, in the past. And he, he's a great, I'm trying to get him back on the show, but, um, so let, let's talk about race. So let um. So you brought up the idea of um. So what? Let me let me ask you this, just so that your position on all this stuff is always is clear to everyone. Um, 
what do you see as the goal of your work and and people who are also doing work similar to yours? Um, what do you think? What do you see as the goal of racial reconciliation? De- I mean, maybe you could start with maybe defining that term and like, what do you see as the goal or the outcome of that? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you ask that question, and, and it's interesting because a lot of people have uh, take a lot of umbrage with that phrase. Mm-hmm in that term, racial reconciliation, right? Because the question is, if you're going to reconcile, mm-hmm. what are you reconciling back to, right? right? Especially when it concerns race here in America, uh, there was never a period and a point of time right. where things were conciliatory, right? right? So therefore, <laughs> there's nothing to rec. We was never cool. It was always beef. So what are we reconciling back to, right? So right. Uh, for folks who would take umbrage with that, and I want to be honest about this, the, the term reconciliation, that word is most favorable among white evangelicals, right? Mm-hmm. Like typically it's white evangelicals who want to reconcile mm-hmm. uh, and who want that to be the, the focus of the work because so often relational reconciliation is mistaken for repairing broken systems and actually systems that aren't broken, but that are working the way they're supposed to work, Mm -hmm. but that are oppressing and marginalizing people. Right. Uh, But the work of relational reconciliation is, is uh, I don't want to say easier, but it's, but it's a, it can feel like an easy win. Oh, I know a black person. Right. Therefore all these things in society. Yeah. It's not that necessarily that it's easier, but the stakes seem lower. The stakes seem lower, it's, it's right? It's more of no. a personal, a, a personal um, journey than it is like trying to attack a, you know, some kind of embedded structural system right. and and all right. that kind of stuff. Yeah, right, right. The stakes are lower because that will cause you to. It's a bigger life disruption. You right. know what I'm saying? You might have to, you know, uh, vote for some tax things that you don't want to vote for. <laughs> right. You might have to put some some people in place and in positions of power that you don't want. To, to vote for because that's going to disrupt and change your everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, the stakes can be a little lower. And oftentimes the we mistake relational reconciliation for the solution uh, because but the problem isn't really that our relationships are, are divided. Like that's mm-hmm. a that's an outcome of what the real problem is. You know what I'm saying? It's the, the mm-hmm. problem is not, hey, let's heal and fix each other in relationship it's like the problem is like when you look across the board and you look at the data mm-hmm. every single health outcome every single economic outcome uh, every single social outcome is tied back to race mm-hmm. there are racial disparities in literally every sector of society now do you think now, now, now let me let me jump in here because uh, uh i have some thoughts on that do you think that um, say, say what you just said again, because I don't want to mischaracterize what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Ab- about I, race being at the center of what were you saying? Yeah, race, every single health outcome, economic outcome, when you look at life expectancy, when you look at likelihood of being incarcerated, when you look at uh, who's more likely to mm-hmm. uh, die during childbirth, when you look at infant mortality rates, uh, when you look at uh, the average... Uh, household income, right? All mm-hmm. of these different predictors of wellness and wholeness in society here in America are racialized. So they're tied back to race. There are racial disparities 
in all of those sectors, right? So, mm-hmm. so my focus and our focus at the center is we do the work of relational reconciliation because mm-hmm. that is part of the solution. I still believe that. I still believe that, you know, we do need to repair relationships, but that's only a part. That's yeah. only a part. The bigger part and what it can't be substituted for is like, yo, we got to change these systems because they're not working for everybody. Gotcha. You. you know, they're working for uh, a few they're mm-hmm. working for those who uh, have the privilege of be, being named as white here in society, but these mm-hmm. systems are not working for uh, an entire uh, swath of the American people, right? So we have to repair these systems and we have to address them so that they work for everybody. And that's that's this thing called equity. Right. So, yes, uh, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I want to put forth this uh, this idea because uh, the more and more I think about the idea of something like reparations, the more and more I, I am uh, I'm in favor of it because I, I'm a little less skeptical. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical, uh, I should say, about about our ability to. So I'm skeptical of the idea that because the, about the cause, the causal nature of of racial disparities in in outcome in outcomes generated by the systems that you're talking about. Uh, let me see if I can phrase that better. Like, I, obviously, there are racial disparities in in a lot of the outcomes that we see in systems and institutions in America. But I don't I'm I don't know that necessary. I don't know that it's necessarily at this point in history. I don't know that it's necessarily because that they're caused by racism anymore. I'm sure there was a point in time where it was much more explicit and there were much more people like, you know, I mean, we had signs in banks, you know, and stuff like that saying you can't get a loan here, things like that. But I would, I, I, part of me thinks that the, the systems are less um, designed to be racist and are more so built in a way that doesn't incentivize them to, um, mitigate the the racist outcomes that they produce they're more incentivized to just continue going as they do and to benefit those who they benefit and if you don't benefit from those systems then i'm sorry and 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 obviously because of our racist past of this country the the outcomes that we're experiencing today tend to divide along racial lines but i i don't know that it's because those systems themselves are inherently racist in some way and i think that's where the conversation if you lose nuance there i feel like you lose a lot of people because when you say well banks are racist and tax codes are racist that may, I think that's an oversimplification. You know what I'm saying? And I and I and I I want to be careful in this conversation because I think there's a really nuanced conversation to be had about it. And I kind of want to get your opinion on it. So here's why here's why I'm in favor of something like reparations, because I think a lot in a lot of the sectors that Black people are um, oppressed in or find themselves to be oppressed in or experiencing an oppressive version of, I think is a better way to put it. Um, I think a lot of the reason why modern day black people are experiencing those problems is because of our racist past in this country, black people and brown people and non-white people for the most part have, we've started behind the eight ball and the eight ball is not incentive incentivized by current systems to make up for that or to mitigate that. I guess where I think my opinion on this diverges from yours a little bit is I think a lot of times trying to do the work of, of, pointing out where a system is racist 
uh, and using that to justify completely retooling an entire system, I think is I'm skeptical of people's uh, on both side of that job. You know, I'm skeptical of their ability, their willingness to do that. The and the incentives just aren't there in a lot of places. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm skeptical of people's willingness to be compassionate to others because we just don't have that capacity as humans. Uh, I I think I think we have the capacity to be compassionate about a very small group of people, and I think we have to allow incentives and and things like that to take over for beyond that. You know what I'm saying? So I guess the reason why I like reparations because because of all that is. I like the idea of empowering those who have historically been behind the eight ball in these systems and structures uh, and, and empowering them with the financial freedom to not have to rely on or not have their destiny dictated by systems that aren't incentivized to mitigate the bad luck that they've been born into. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like rather than tearing down. And now, obviously, if there are if there are and this is. There are repairs that need to be made and restructures that need to be made to systems, financial or otherwise, in the United States. Um, I think just in general, regardless of racial lines, because they don't serve, they don't because they're either corrupt or they don't serve uh, enough people that they that they should be altruistically. But I don't necessarily think that project has to be drawn along racial lines. Where I do think things have to be drawn drawn along racial lines is. People that have been historically and systemically oppressed by these systems, rather than trying to those places where there are obvious like corruptions and 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 weird things and systems that need to be fixed, just in general, I think we should definitely fix those and retool them. If there are systems that are completely corrupt, maybe we do, we completely take them out and we find something better. I'm I'm perfectly in favor of that, but I think doing that, trying to do that um, along the lines of racism, I think is fighting an uphill battle where I think a much more um, realistic and attainable goal is, based on the way our government currently operates, is to simply financially empower historically oppressed people to where their their futures and their destinies are not governed by systems that are not incentivized to mitigate their bad luck. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think it's both. Okay. I would push back and say I think it's both. Mm -hmm. I think reparations do need to be paid, and they have been paid, by the way, historically mm -hmm. here in America. We got always got to start with history. Of course, right? You mentioned educate uh, me John on the show. That's that's that is John. He he will tell you history, history, history. Right. So we have historically paid reparations, uh, mm -hmm. uh, most notably or infamously, reparations were paid to enslavers. After slavery was abolished, mm -hmm. uh, those who enslaved and kidnapped and forced uh, uh, labor uh, out of black people here in, in America were repaid, received reparations from the United States government. Mm -hmm. like, like, I feel like just let that sink in for a second. If you if you just if you listen, reparations in America have been paid and they were paid to enslavers. Right. So there's a historical precedent for that. So we're, we're, we're on board there. Um, I think it's both, though. I think okay. you have to economically restore those who've been disenfranchised. But then I think you also do need to repair systems and you do need to repair them along racial lines because that's where the clearest disparity is, mm -hmm. right? So if we are going to accurately... Uh, minister to the issues and minister to the problems 
then we do need to take the concern and center the most affected group, right? Like, so, so for instance, if, 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 uh, if it's 10 of us in a, in a room, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm not that, I'm not that tall. I'm, I'm little, little wide, but you know, I ain't that tall. You know what I'm saying? So I'm walking, you might not notice that I'm, that I'm, you know, five foot something, but I ain't super tall. Uh-huh. But if we walk into a room, it's, mm-hmm. it's 10 of us, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and the ceiling is, is, is super low, you know, and, and it's some folks come in and say, Hey, what do we do about this ceiling? You know, how, do, do you like it? Is it fine? I'm gonna be like, yes, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool with me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think we should keep it at the height it is. No, no, no. You know what? Let's let's raise it a little, but let's raise it about two inches. Mm-hmm. You know, and and then you leave. But then there's other people in that room who are about six foot something, mm-hmm. and they like, yo, I, I I know you talked to this dude, and he said this is what you should do to fix the problem, but that don't really work for me, mm-hmm. right? Now, why is his solution different? Why is that person's solution different? Because they're more affected. Mm-hmm. They're more affected by what's not working than I am. Right. So when we talk mm-hmm. about repairing these systems mm-hmm. that are producing these racial disparities, you do that along racial lines because you're trying to fix the problem and find a solution for those who are the most affected party. So think about. Um, but can you, you know, Chase, can you do that along? Can you do that along class lines? And, and and get the same well, outcomes. See, that's a that's a good question. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson has a a, a fantastic new book out called uh, Cast mm-hmm. Cast C A S T E mm-hmm. uh, Origins of Our Discontent, and it's a beautiful book um, because what she does is she just poignantly points out how the United States of America, when it comes to race, we actually have a caste system. Mm-hmm similar to what is present in India mm-hmm. and similar to what was present in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. right? And he compares uh, the three uh, caste systems uh, in, the, in their origins, right? She compares uh, Jim Crow apartheid to the Nuremberg laws in Nazi Germany. And as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. uh, before Nazi Germany instituted the Nuremberg laws, they look to the United States of America for inspiration on how to segregate a society. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I bring that up to say class and race are talked about uh, in the same breath a lot of times. But what Wilkerson points out so well is that race governs class in America. So when you look at the data and when you look at the, the full the full scope of the data, race governs class. So for instance, race will tell you more readily what class someone is in than class will tell you what race. Yes, is. but aren't you kind of running into a chicken? So wait, well, hold on. Let Sorry, me go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So if you were to try to address issues and systemic issues across uh, class lines, you wouldn't, you wouldn't cut the pie up accurately. You know what I'm saying? Race governs class and is, and is a predictor of what uh, class someone is in. That's why it's it's. Uh, I really agree with the premise of that book that America has a caste system, because one of the things uh, Wilkerson says mm-hmm. is if you can act your way out of it, it's class. Mm-hmm. If you can act and achieve your way out of it, it's class. If you can't act or achieve your way out of it, it's caste. So let me let me give you a clear example. 
couple years ago. Um, you know, the this this is right outside of a New York uh, City nightclub. Um, you know, the club is getting out. It's like the wee hours of the morning, mm-hmm. um, and the NYPD, you know, just start, you know roughing up some black folks, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's just, there's a lot of different, you know, things about what went down, but essentially, you know, some folks, uh, get arrested and there's some significant, uh, significantly documented police brutality, right. Mm-hmm. That, that occurs, uh, outside of this nightclub, mm-hmm. someone gets their arm broken, like mm-hmm. in this altercation. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know who the person was that got their arm broken, <laughs> It was the starting guard for the Atlanta Hawks, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the NBA team, mm-hmm. the NBA Atlanta Hawks. Right. It was a black man by the name of Tabo Cephalosha. Mm-hmm. Gets his arm broken outside of a New York City nightclub by the NYPD. Mm-hmm. He is at the top of class here in America. Mm-hmm. But his race still dictates that he is much more likely to be physically assaulted right. and brutalized by the police. His class can't get him out of that. Of course. His class status can't ascend and achieve him out of being targeted by the police. Mm-hmm. With LeBron James, like I think it was like 2016, 2017, the brother pulls up to his mansion in, in, I think it's in some upscale neighborhood out there. He's playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers at the time. Mm-hmm. Pulls up to his mansion. And on the gates of his mansion, Mm-hmm. The N word is spray painted in bold black letters. Mm-hmm. LeBron James is at the top of class mm-hmm. here in American society, but his class cannot bring him outside of his race, right? So, class can't transcend race. So, if we fix things along class lines, it still doesn't fix the racial disparities because here in America, I'll say it again, race governs class. And I think you brought this up earlier uh, because of the ways in which our systems were originally constructed, all the laws, all the different things that were codified into written law Mm -hmm. that were explicitly drawn along racial lines gave us that head start. So after the civil rights movement with the civil rights act in 1965 all of that uh, all of those uh, racially discriminatory all the racially uh, discriminatory language was taken out of the law like you couldn't do that anymore right, right. Uh, but but as we mentioned we never fixed those systems mm-hmm. we just took the racial language out of those systems right. they just operating in the same way you know so so here in america race has always governed class so that's why i would say I, I will push back. It's, it's reparations, it's economic repair, but we also have to take a look. Like we have to take a look at at policing, and we have to center totally. black in that conversation, right? So that's totally. what I mean by addressing it along racial lines. Is you have to center the people who are most affected. Sure, I, I guess what I, I guess what I was more speaking to when I was when I was making that point was more about you know um, institutions that um i was i was talking more about economic and financial lines and things like that institutions that um cuz if you ask me personally i think policing is is more the the racial issues in policing to me are more um of a social issue 
than they are like a financial or even like a structural issue in terms of like how you go about repairing them. I think there's I think what you're doing at the Center for Racial Reconciliation is I think like police any anyone who any any kind of public servant or something like that but especially those like police who have the ability to take life um i think those people need to be doing especially that kind of work um uh, on the personal sort of social level reconciliation with communities countering narratives and things like that i think that that is crucial and that and that has to be drawn along racial lines because i think that it, policing is a is a is a case where the racial disparity and things like police violence and things like that are they have a causal relationship to racism on a personal level whereas in things that are a little bit more institutional with or not institutional but like things that are more um systemic where people where black people typically are systemically behind the eight ball where whether it comes to um in home ownership property ownership things like that yes the roots of why that is why that is is because of racism but i i i i'm skeptical that that is racism is the reason that those trends uh, repeat themselves. I think that's more of a lack of incentive in, built into the system to correct for those things. And I think those the, the way we go about repairing those systems can and probably should be drawn more along class lines because now there are people who suffer from those same systems that don't account for black people in the same way that black people suffer from those. But obviously black people, because we start off behind the eight ball, disproportionately experience more of that um lack of care from those systems let's just call it um that's why i think like so to use your example about um about tall people and raising the roof and things like that um i guess what i'm advocating for when it comes to systems that i don't that uh, you know i don't think are necessarily inherently racism they just don't account for the racism of the people involved does that make sense i think yeah. uh, to use that example uh if I think the 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 real fair way to keep the analogy of like the the tall people in the, in the ceiling is instead of saying okay hey sh person who's five 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 feet whatever um, sh are you cool with the roof height and you're like yeah and then the people who are over six six are like hold on this is this is hurting our heads we can't walk in here I think the correct way to adjust that problem is to say let's create a room where you know nobody's head gets hit and that's going to disproportionately favor people who are taller because there's if you're the only person who's under six feet and everybody else is over six feet it's going to be a problem that a low ceiling is going to be a problem that's experienced more by the people who are taller by the majority of the people in the room and thus that's that solution to the problem hey who, who raise your hand if your head is hitting the ceiling and we're gonna we're gonna make sure that it doesn't hit your ceiling and your head doesn't hit the ceiling anymore that's a that's a an outcome that is still has you in mind as a short person who has less to worry about um and it is still shorter hey, shorter hey. excuse me excuse me shorter <laughs> but it also but but by definition it's going to affect those who are disproportionately affected by a lower ceiling without having to without having to find racism in the system or racism at the root or convince a bunch of tall people that uh, short people's problems matter too because I just don't, I'm skeptical of people's ability towards compassion outside of their own yeah. immediate sphere. You know what I'm saying? Let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. That, that, you know, that we, could, we could pick up on that. That's, that's an interesting uh, point you just raised. Compassion yeah. outside of 
on Spear. Yeah, we could talk about that. But I want to ask a question sure. about uh, what you were saying before. Uh-huh. And by the way, yo, this is us in our bag. This is what we do. <laughs> this is what we bag. do. <laughs> uh, but I want to I want to poke a little bit. Sure, let's uh, do it. You said that the the systems we've created in America, right? Mm-hmm. Let's take housing, for example, for for, for folks listening. I want to give them a clear example. Right. Right. Uh, home ownership here in America is the number one driver of wealth. And it yeah. has been uh, for at least the last uh, 80 to 90 years. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think in, in all of American history, home ownership uh, and land ownership has always been the, the, the number one driver of wealth. Pass it down. Uh, it, it is paid off. It, it builds uh, equity. It only appreciates in value, right? right. So home is the number one driver of wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in the 20s and 30s and 40s, there was explicit all the way into the 50s with redlining, restrictive housing covenants. Of course. Uh, yep. There was explicit language that mm-hmm. said uh, black people can't live in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We are going to explicitly devalue your home because this is a black neighborhood right mm-hmm. and with the passage of the civil rights act all of that uh racially discriminatory language uh had to be taken out of of restrictive housing covenants those things could no longer exist so back to your point you said that was the starting point mm-hmm. and now there's just you know it, it's not the starting point it's not how those systems function anymore right. but there's just no incentive to correct that right mm-hmm. So my question is, why do you think there's no incentive to correct that? Because the only incentive for most industries is to um, benefit those who have, you know, an advantage in that system as much as possible. Like most systems and industries are designed for whoever is willing or whoever either has the good luck of or good fortune or whatever of of having power in that system to maintain and build on it or for the most ambitious uh, people within that system who have the least amount of hurdles to gain as much as possible who would that be in america in america in america it happens to be white people and i i think that was it was it was I think the, along the, I think it started that way intentionally, but I don't think that that's the way those systems operate. They just don't correct for it. Does that make sense? But that's what I'm saying. So okay, so I'm gonna just say but, it because but, 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 we, we can do part two. Hold we can on, do, <laughs> hold on. Because <laughs> let me let me just let me give you the counter to that. Because now, so say say there's um a hundred. So say there's a community. Let's just take the city of Los Angeles, right? Or let's take a, a smaller community than that, like San Marino, South Pasadena, right? If if you if you said, okay, we are going to give, uh, it, you know, in order to correct for the systems that don't mitigate, you know, the bad luck experienced by people with no housing, uh, who don't own homes and stuff like that. First time home buyers who make under a certain amount of money, let's just say it's $50,000, right? Or, you know, first time home- homeowners or people who want to buy a house who make under $50,000, the government or whoever, let's just say the government is going to, is going to subsidize half of the cost of that house for those families right now if 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 you took a hundred random families from the united states uh, of people who make less than fifty thousand dollars the majority of those people are going to be black and brown so the majority of the people who are going to get the benefit of whatever this new housing voucher is are going to disproportionately be black and brown which is it's still along racial lines but you don't have to get over the hurdle of convincing a bunch of a bunch of non people of color, let's just say that, that, yeah. Hey, we need to give a bunch of money to black and brown people simply because they're black and brown. 
even though well, I, I would be in favor of that, you don't have to convince a bunch of white people to do that. Is well, what I'm I, saying. I, I would I would push back, and again, we got five minutes because <laughs> aggregate in terms of total number, most of those people would actually be white, mm-hmm. right? So when you talk about the total number, there's more white people on welfare in America than black and brown right. folk. Right? Mm-hmm. So that 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 actually doesn't break down in that way, which right. is why. Again, class can't be the number one. You can't go across class lines because there's more poor white people on aggregate in total number than there are poor black people, which brings you to uh, an interesting... Which which is why I like reparations and just giving people money, because if you were to just give everyone under a certain amount of poverty level money and and raise their amount of uh, economic or financial freedom, that's going to help everyone and it's going to it's going to give it's going to give black people the same benefit that i think uh white people have in in the sense of like i would love to get it to where everybody is i would love to get to a point where everybody is starting from the same place in terms of nothing about your we try to admit we try to mitigate as a society as much of the We try to mitigate as much of the bad luck that you can have being born into this country to where I'm I'm struggling to articulate myself. But uh, as I would love for as little of your financial, economic, whatever kind of destiny that there is, I would want as little to that to be dictated by luck as possible. Like I want that all to be dictated by however much you want to put into it. You know what I'm saying? Rather than like, man, I happen to be born in brown skin or man, I happen to be born, you know, five foot six or whatever. Like, you know what I'm saying? And I I agree with that, which is why I think we have to make things as equitable as possible. And sometimes the only way to make things as equitable as possible is to go straight and and directly to the source of where things are not equitable. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So if I, I want that kind of world, too. Mm-hmm. You know, but we have to admit that that's not that we have to first admit that that's not the world we live in. And we have to ad- address that right at the root, because if we just say, hey, you know, everybody's got an equal playing field right now. We're all equal. Go for it. You know, it's like, yo, if if, if team A is down by 100 at the half, mm-hmm. but team B got all these advantages and all the, the the calls went team P's way. It's not enough to just say, yo, all right, you know what? This half, all right, we're going we're gonna to call it fair. We're going to call it fair. All right. Everybody's on the same. Wait, no, no, no. They still up by a hundred. We like, we gotta, we gotta yeah. actively do something to close that gap. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave with this. Cause this is what I want to say. We got to do part two. Yeah. My brother got to work <laughs> at 12 and it is 1157. But we gotta do part two. <laughs> and the reason I asked you that question, going back to why uh, isn't there an incentive to fix these systems? I'm going to just say it. The incentive it, it, typically, not typically to overwhelmingly uh-huh. in American history, we don't care about problems until they affect white people. Of course. We talk about them differently when they affect white people than when they affect black people. Yeah. One of Dr. King's most famous sermons uh, was entitled The Other America. It's, it's a great, great listen. Yeah. But one of the things he says is, you know, when you're white, they call it a depression. Mm-hmm. When you're black, they call it uh, a social issue, mm-hmm. a racial issue, mm-hmm. right? But when you're white and, and, you're, and the economy is struggling, oh my God, it's a depression, and we gotta we gotta do things, we gotta fix this. There comes here comes a new deal, 
Mm-hmm. But when you're black and you're struggling economically, it's phrased differently. Of course. It's painted differently. And yeah. it's addressed differently, right? Yeah. So the incentive, again, I'm talking about history, the incentive historically in America to solve problems at the societal level mm-hmm. is lacking when it comes to people who are black and the incentive to fix social issues and health issues and economic issues is there when you are white. And like, yeah. like I said, we got to pick it up. Yeah. We got to do part two because it's happening right now. Yeah. It's happening right now with the opioid crisis. Yeah. There is a health crisis right now with the opioid crisis that has a more of a white face to it. Sure. Right. And that health problem is being addressed starkly different than the 1980s and the crack cocaine epidemic, which had a predominantly black face to it. And I say that intentionally because when you look at the numbers of who were actually using those drugs, the media would have you to believe that it was mostly black people, but it was actually mostly white people. Mm-hmm. But it was portrayed as an inner city black problem. Mm-hmm. And it was addressed differently, as in there was a war on these drugs, as in there was a war on these communities where real people live that's still going on today, right? But the opioid crisis is viewed as a health crisis. There's no war on opioids right now. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Because the incentive to fix that the way it needs to be fixed is present because white people are involved in that. But problem. I would argue Why? it's not going to get fixed. I would argue yeah, it's, not, it's not going to get fixed it's because it's, it, it's big. It's, it's well. Know, bro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I, yo, what we do, we in our bag. Yo, yo, we got to do, we got to pick this up. We got to do a part two, yo. We'll Let's do schedule. part two. Thank you, Chase. For I appreciate you for coming through, bro. Yeah, for sure, bro. Thanks for having me, man. Yes, sir. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Weekly Regular. Uh, man, we got to get Chase back on and do a part two. Um, yeah, you can find episodes of this podcast and more at uh, theweeklyregular.com or uh, Weekly Regular across social media. You can find me at Asan the DJ on social media. That's at A H S O H N the DJ. Uh, you can listen to my other podcast, uh, Carl Calls His Cousin, a part of the Flagrant Ones, Flagrant Family Patreon stream. Uh, just go to patreon.com slash flagrant ones. They may have changed it to Flagrant Family. Just Google flagrant ones patreon podcast asan you'll find it uh and for just a couple dollars uh a month you can listen to a podcast where i hang out and talk to my cousin uh actor writer comedian uh carl tart very funny very good conversations uh it's just me and him talking on the phone and you get to you get to hear it (laughs) and watch it if you're a weirdo you can watch the video of it too but uh yeah thanks uh thanks to chase uh uh we really appreciate him for coming on the show appreciate everything he's doing at the fellowship center for racial reconciliation and uh we'll have him back on thank you and we'll see y'all next week